1: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Anna Malika Tubbs as we discuss her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. This special edition podcast was recorded in conjunction with Mr. Chuck Hicks of the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee. We are grateful for their support, and participation. Anna is a multidisciplinary scholar on race, gender, and equity issues. She holds a BA in anthropology from Stanford University, an MS in gender studies, and PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge, where she was a Bill and Melinda Gates Cambridge scholar. Anna, welcome to That Said with Michael Zeldin and in conjunction with the DC Black History Celebration.
2: Thank committed. you for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So let's start on a, with you. Tell us about yourself. Where were you raised and educated in the likes, please?
2: Oh, sure. Oh, this is hard for me. It's so much easier if someone else does the bio because I tend to not want to, but I'll do it <laughs> since you assigned it to me. Um, I am Anna Malika Tubbs. I was actually born in Albuquerque, but spent most of my life abroad. Both my parents uh, were lawyers and wanted us to have this privilege of seeing the world firsthand for ourselves. So I lived in places like Dubai, Estonia, Mexico, Sweden, Azerbaijan, um, perhaps most exotic of all, Laramie, Wyoming for four years. And then I was in Indiana, for boarding school before going to Stanford for undergrad, where I studied anthropology. Um, I left Stanford, uh, graduated in 2014, and went to the University of Cambridge for my master's in multidisciplinary gender studies, and then I came to Stockton um, because the person that I met in undergrad and fell in love with, wanted to run for mayor of Stockton, um, my husband, Michael Tubbs. So I spent years there teaching, and I was also a college counselor, and then would commute back and forth from the University of Cambridge to Stockton, California, um, pursuing my PhD. So um, my PhD is in sociology, and that's how I actually came to this book. They, um, these three women, Alberta King, Burtis Baldwin, and Louise Little, were the subjects of my dissertation as well.
1: So why did you choose them? Of all the options available to you with degrees in three different substantive areas, what drew you to this?
2: It was, you know, it's a long process to get to a book, of course. Um, So I feel like it was just a process of elimination Um, over many years, really kind of thinking, what do I want my first book to be I was always pretty clear that I in my heart and mind that I wanted to be a public facing scholar so there were a lot of goals that led up to it um first I was really inspired by Margot Lee book Hidden Figures um and the research that she did if you haven't read the book you probably heard of the movie or saw the movie Hidden Figures uh but I was really blown away by really even the basic concept of this book which was these black women had been erased Um, But by knowing their stories, by uncovering the truth about them, we not only understood them and appreciated them, we better understood American history and how we've arrived where we are as a nation today. And so I said, I'm going to be somebody who finds other hidden figures. To add to that, I had an amazing mom who always talked to me about the importance of motherhood. She advocated for women's rights, both in the U.S. as well as abroad. And everywhere that we lived, she told us, my siblings and I, to focus on how mothers were being treated in different communities, and that this was an indicator for how successful the community could be. If they valued motherhood, they could do well. This was what she believed. And so I thought about that. I said, okay, a hidden figures project combined with motherhood, um, this this kind of role in our society that's being overlooked and unappreciated. Um, And then I narrowed it down to the civil rights movement. We come back to the civil rights movement all the time in our policy discussions. We're celebrating it all the time as we should, Uh, but we think about it from such a male perspective. That was something I wanted to address. And I thought, I can kind of play with the patriarchy here. I can be strategic. I think more people will come to this book if the names MLK Jr. or Malcolm X are on it, James Baldwin being a third. Um, I'll use that to bring more people to this audience. And no matter what brought them to the book, they'll still walk away knowing three Black women's stories that we should have known all along. And I'll finally say that all three of these mothers were born within six years of each other. And their famous sons were born within five years of each other. So when I discovered this, I thought, that's perfect. I can bring these three incredibly different stories together. I won't reduce their complexities. I'll bring them together through time. And you write
1: that the lives of the three mothers that you try to honor, honors actually, in addition to them, Black motherhood generally as a whole and a celebration of the knowledge that's passed down from mothers to daughters, generation to generation. And so why don't we talk a little bit before we dive into the individual moms about Black motherhood and what you came to appreciate about it. I mean, you live it, you have your lived experience, but what did your research teach you about Black motherhood?
2: Yeah, I should definitely say that I was not a mom when I started this project, and by the time I finished the book, I was. Uh, so I was expecting my firstborn when I was in the middle of the research for this book. So there's a lot to be said. Um, I talk about in the the introduction this kind of these feelings of one being very excited, very happy that I was becoming a mom, but then also being very afraid because I, as somebody who studied the state of Black womanhood, really, in all of my degrees, I uh, was well aware of how dangerous it could be to be a Black mother in the United States, how in seeking care for myself and my child, I would be confronted with biases, that Black women were three to four times more likely to die in pregnancy or in childbirth, and that if I were to survive that and my child were to survive that, they would go on and be a Black child in America. And I was so aware of all of the attacks against our humanity, against our bodies, against our minds and our souls. So I had a lot of fear. Um, I also knew Black women were the only ones um, by law in American history who were deemed the givers of property through our children. So not the givers of life, not that our children were seen as human beings, but that they were seen as property, somebody else's property. So the dehumanization, I was so cognizant of that. But in studying these three women, it was a beautiful and warm embrace into motherhood. I really describe it as a warm hug that the three of them were giving me as a reminder that I had agency still and that it was critical that I hold on to my joy, um, that fear not be the only thing that was driving me. And for me to think about how I could use both that joy and that fear um, to continue the work I was already doing for social justice and Uplifting the Stories of Black Women, that my children were just even more motivation for that. Um, And I could see that so clearly in each of the three women. They had very different approaches to Black freedom. Um, They used different strategies. And I really found my own place in that and was learning from them um, along the way of writing this book and becoming a mother myself. So uh, I found... The importance of not only thinking about the sadness, not only thinking about the pain, recognizing that, recognizing the unique burdens that mothers, Black mothers are facing in the U.S., but also thinking about how Black mothers have continued to create life. Even what is denied to them. And that's not only through birthing our children, but through our creativity, through our activism, through our writing, through educating. So it's not only a celebration of biological motherhood, it's also community mothering, um, teachers, caretakers that are doing mothering work. And it's a constant kind of back and forth in terms of inspiration. The book inspires my motherhood. My motherhood also inspired my writing. So it's a really fun journey that I continue to be on. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's wonderful. The part of the book where you talk about Black motherhood generally, you write that Black women are ultimately practitioners of the ability to turn tragedy into opportunity, face fear and persecution with faith and unmatched perseverance, and create something out of nothing because it has been required of them. And throughout the book, you use three terms, which I'd like to sort of talk about, then we'll turn to the moms themselves. And the terms that you use, which I'd like you to talk about and define, are dehumanization, resistance, and then motherhood generally. So can you talk a little bit about this topic? Yeah,
2: really the center and kind of the heart and driving force of the book is this discussion of dehumanization, meaning any way in which someone is being treated as if they are less than human, And so um, kind of bringing that to current conversations, quite often as Black community members, we are saying we are being treated as less than human. And a lot of people will say, oh, that's dramatic, or that's not true, or that was years ago, that's not happening, etc. Um, but I said, I'm going to focus on Black motherhood, because this is really the epitome of the treatment that somebody is being treated as less than human. Going back to what I was saying, that even by law, saying your descendants are not human, they are property and how so many of the systems in our country were built on this notion that we were not human, that our descendants were not human, we're going to still see remnants of that to this day. So anything that challenges somebody's humanity, that treats somebody as if they're less than human, that speaks about somebody as if they're less than human, that's a form of dehumanization. And then on the other side of that, I'm celebrating the resistance to that the ways in which we continue to say we are human and we push against that dehumanizing treatment. And that can mean so many different things. It can be resistance by, you know, marching or boycotts resistance through, reclaiming our stories, um, telling our stories, me writing this book as a form of resistance to dehumanization, saying these women were here, they deserve to be seen, they deserve to be honored, um, and thinking about how that honoring of them allows us to fight dehumanization today that still exists. How can we better support and see and honor Black mothers right now. Um, And then that final third kind of term that obviously drives the book, which is Black motherhood, um, is going back to when we focus on biological motherhood, and we focus on really the disrespect of this role that I think we have a a real problem with in the United States, where we, you know, have these stories we tell about motherhood, we thank mothers for being selfless beings without needs for other people to consider, um, as if they don't have any needs of their own, and then we maybe, when mothers want to work outside of the home, we challenge that, and we say, you're going to be distracted, maybe we're going to push you out of your job, um, or you should pretend you don't have children, or even for women who do not want to have children, there's just this constant discussion around, this role of motherhood being defined by other people. Um, And I wanted to think about that even more generally, but very specifically, what it means for a group of people who have always been told that they are not human themselves, and that their descendants will not be human. How do black mothers still practice revolutionary love, and saying, I'm going to create life, uh, in all of these many different forms. So those are definitely three of the primary kind of vocabulary words for the book.
1: And you write that in order to understand the beliefs and actions of the three mothers, we must understand the extent to which their humanity was denied in their upbringing, and their lives. So let's turn to each of the three moms. We can start with Louise, uh, Little, Malcolm X's mom. And tell us about, let's talk about their childhood, and then we'll move to they're more formative years than marriage and birthday and the stuff. So tell us about Ms. Little.
2: Definitely. So Louise was born in Grenada. Um, her birth date is not clear. Scholars have kind of, kind of different ideas on this, but it was somewhere between 1897 and 1899. And she was really inspired by her grandparents who, um, we would call liberated Africans now, which means at one point they were enslaved and then they were able to gain their freedom. And so they are Nigerian and they are all about black independence. Black pride, black self-sufficiency. And this is what they teach their children and their grandchildren. So Louise grows up believing that she has to stand up in the face of oppression, she has to keep her head high, um, that she would rather die than live um, as if she were less than somebody else or be treated this way. Um, she doesn't want to ever depend on her white oppressor. Uh, so she's entirely. Uh, self-sufficient. She knows how to garden. She knows how to hunt. She knows how to sew her own clothing. She's also well-educated. She attends an Anglican school um, where she's able to really receive an above-average education for a Black woman in the early 1900s, or a Black girl, I should say. Um, She loves poetry, especially. And when she is around, let's say, between 18 to 20, since, again, we don't know <laughs> exactly what year she was born, she leaves Grenada uh, to travel to Montreal, Canada, all on her own, because she wants to join an international movement for Black freedom and Black lives. And she joins the Marcus Garvey movement, and she writes for the Negro World newspaper. So she's very radical um, and unafraid to even put her name in writing, saying, this is what I believe. Um, she doesn't hide ever. She uses this this personality that's sort of just really bold and very courageous um, in her fight for the the pursuance of, of Black freedom.
1: You write of her that she would become a warrior and symbol of resistance because the struggle for freedom pulsed through her genes. And so maybe to understand how it pulsed through her genes, you can give us just a minute or two, or longer, on Grenada. because. Yeah. It's an interesting country in terms of its defined resistance to white supremacy. It's yeah. unique in many ways.
2: Yeah, actually, I don't know if you have to have that whole quote or available to you because it also talks about the water that holds the warriors. no.
1: I, I I'll have, have it. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'll
2: talk about it, yeah, so okay. the scenes I was definitely referring to her grandparents and even the stories that they're bringing from um their West African resistance stories, but especially in that same chapter, I also speak about how the land that raises her and holds her um is telling her these stories of freedom and liberation, and basically meaning that Grenada is known for their resistance. To colonialism um, long before Louise is born, but she would have known these stories. So one is um, a group of Carib Indians who were on the island um, when European colonizers are trying to take their land. And instead of you know serving these colonizers or maybe um, bowing down to them, they try to fight them. And in the end, they decide they would rather jump to their death um, than to live enslaved. And so there's a hill in Grenada that you can go and honor um, their lives. It's called Leaper's Hill or Jumper's Hill, uh, where they jumped down as a symbol and this kind of claim that they would rather die than live enslaved. So this is something that Louise also cares deeply about, this notion of, I would rather stand for myself and my humanity than live under oppression. Um, So I, I would rather risk my life even. Uh, than live under oppression. So this is something that's important. And we will, of course, hear a little bit more later about how that translates into her mothering of her children. But also um, another story is Fadon's Rebellion. Um, This was a man who was incredibly inspired by the Haitian Revolution. And so he organizes Black people on the island of Grenada um, and in Ladigue, where where Louise is from, saying he wants everybody to, to organize against the British regime that's been trying to take control of them. And so Fadan and his followers take control of the island for over a year. Uh, It takes 16 regiments, British regiments, to control them. um, And Fadan ends up escaping still. So no one knows where he ended up going after that. But I, I say in the book that his revolutionary spirit lived on. uh, And it's something that locals would tell in terms of a story about how we fight, how we resist, how we do not just bow down. We keep our heads up high and we claim our humanity.
1: Tell us about Alberta Christine Williams.
2: Yes. Alberta Christine Williams King, um, eventually, she was born in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1902, um, or sorry, 1903, and she was raised by uh, her parents, who were the leaders of Ebenezer Baptist Church, so um, they are the ones who established the church, and they teach her about the importance of Christian faith being intertwined with social justice, that you can't have one Without the other, uh, that if you are a religious leader, um, or if you're a believer, you are somebody that also stands against oppression, you stand against discrimination, um, you use your privileges if you have access to any to advance freedom causes forward so one of those would be um, for them their access to education, all of the men. And Alberta's family go to Morehouse, and all of the women go to Spelman, um, and so they're well educated. They are well known in the community um, as these freedom fighters. Um, but for the through the forms of marches, boycotts, they join organizations like the NAACP. They were some of the very first members of the NAACP, and Alberta really follows in their footsteps. She believes all of these things as well, and she is well-educated. She has a bachelor's degree, and she also earns a teaching certificate.
1: Faith really obviously drove a lot of their behaviors, and you write that from her early childhood, she was taught that everyone was equal in the eyes of God and that everyone had a role to play in achieving such equality on earth. So it was a very faith-based activism. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's
2: something that you can't um, take away or separate from the Williams family or the King family later on.
1: But it was interesting to me, and I didn't realize this, that her dad, Adam Daniel, was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, and that Martin Luther King Jr., by Mm -hmm. marrying Alberta yeah ultimately the heir to that pulpit
2: I love telling that story because we so often assume or maybe people just decided that because MLK Sr. is MLK Jr.'s namesake (laughs) um, that that's how MLK Jr. became a pastor and and it's actually not really the full story it's Alberta's family uh, who has the church and even in MLK Sr.'s autobiography he will tell you that all of his friends made fun of him when he had this crush on Alberta Williams because she was the the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist this kind of you know beautiful, intelligent, well-educated, well-connected person um, of this powerful family. And he described himself as just a, quote, green country boy. Uh, and his friend said, what are you doing? There's, there's no way basically that she's going to be that She's going to fall in love with you. And she does, she does fall in love with him, but she says to him um, when they meet, he's actually considered illiterate. He didn't have the same opportunities that she did. He doesn't come from the same family. His parents are sharecroppers. Um, and she says, I want to help you on your journey. You need to be educated. This is what I've been taught. You know, this is what her family believes that education is a tool for freedom, And so she helps to get him into Morehouse to follow in the footsteps of her family members and she tutors him she's a teacher uh, through his college education, and he ends up becoming this powerful orator incredible leader his story is also very inspiring, but he would tell you himself and you can read his book I didn't make this up. He could not have done this without her. And that's not, you know, just sort of like what we say about all our partners. <laughs> we all say that with him. It is literally, he could not have become who he was without Alberta.
1: Like many of us, he married up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about Burtis Baldwin, please.
2: Yes, Burtis was born in Deal Island, Maryland, this tiny place uh, in 1902. And her life is influenced primarily by tragedy at first uh, she loses her mother at a very young age uh, I can't say exactly when this happens all I know is in Leah Esther her mother's death certificate uh, I can see that she was she dies the same month and year that Burtis is born um, from hemorrhaging and that tells us that it was probably in childbirth or related to childbirth somehow. So in this moment of darkness, really, uh, Burtis surprisingly becomes somebody who wants to focus on how you find healing, how you can find the light, no matter how hard circumstances can become. And she primarily explores this through her love of writing. So she gifts letters to everybody around her um, filled with lessons on love, and healing, and how you confront pain, confront hatred to move forward towards love and light um, and progress. And so although she was never a published writer, because that opportunity wasn't available to her, um, I call her a writer because even later on, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but James Baldwin's principles say, They can clearly see who he inherits his writing talent from solely based off of the notes that she would write to excuse his absences. How beautiful is that? How can you make a letter that says he's sick? sounds so beautiful that someone would say, wow, I see where this talented student inherited his writing talent from. Um, so Burtis is a writer and she leaves Deal Island um, at around the age of 17. She's also a teenager um, and goes to first Philadelphia. She joins the Great Migration, goes to Philadelphia, but then she ends up in New York, um, right in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance.
1: You write of her upbringing that Although she suffered loss at an early age her family did not allow her to sit in her pain they always showed her love and happiness were always available no matter what you've gone through and no matter how little you might have yeah important yeah. lesson in that
2: Definitely and um in the Bal- in Bertis's case and the Baldwin family case generally they come from the most humble of means, And it's really incredible to witness from as much as possible as we can uh, in my studies of Burtis, how she continues to focus on this love, this light, this happiness and levity and joy when it was very difficult to be Burtis. So it's something that I still don't fully understand. I wish I could have interviewed her to better know her mantra <laughs> and how she continued to practice it. But um, yeah, that's what she was known for through and through, was that love, that joy, no matter what.
1: Well, it's interesting because as with uh, Louise growing up in Grenada, Bertis grew up in the Deal Island area of Maryland, the water area where Frederick Douglass uh, hailed from. And it was an interesting community. Maybe you could talk a little about the self-sufficiency and really interracial cooperation among those who lived in this water, though this was a terrible part of Maryland from a, enslavement mm-hmm. point of view.
2: Yeah, there's so much to say. It's something that was interesting for me. I didn't realize how many of these kind of famous freedom fighters came from Maryland. Um, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Thurgood Marshall later on. There is such rich history. It's not what I don't, I mean, maybe I'm the only one, but it's not the immediate state that comes to mind for me, I think, you know, Black freedom movements. But um, largely, uh, there's this population of people who are by the water. Um, and I, in my research, discovered that the Black seamen were some of the first people to be considered free Black people. Um, and they had their papers, and they were allowed to travel on water. And so the fact that Burtis grows up um, you know, in this water, in this island, uh, around men who are working on the water, um, and her father works in the water. Um, it's interesting to see that history of somebody like Frederick Douglass, um, really only a couple years before Burtis, truly, um, having gained his own freedom, escaping to freedom by using a seaman's papers. And I think that's just really incredible history that we don't spend enough time thinking about. Um, I did not know that they were some of the very first free black people. And I say, I want to say it's mostly men. I, I would imagine that there were not um, many women. So that's why I'm mainly focusing on, on black men here. Um, but it's something that would have been important to vertices kind of understanding of what's possible. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, just so that we know where we are in terms of the timeline of American history, Harriet Tubman didn't pass away until 1914. Burtis was born in 1902. Um, and then Burtis doesn't pass away until 1999. Uh, so this is very recent history. And there, there is this overlap. She would have heard these whispers of, you know, um, or even knowing the history of the Moses of Black people, Harriet Tubman, or maybe the story of Frederick Douglass or his writing. Um, that is not something, it wouldn't be a surprise if she was well aware of these stories. And
1: pivoting a bit now to the middle years, which you call it, uh, so sort of their character formation, not that their early years weren't character forming, but Let's start with Louise, because Louise, as you said, she moves and she becomes part of Marcus Garvey's Pan-Africanism. And so talk a little bit about it, because that informs the way she raises her child and how her child's beliefs matured into what they became.
2: Definitely. Yes. So she is... Um, I always use this word to describe her. She's radical. She is really ahead of her time. This is a black immigrant woman, um, first in Montreal, Canada, saying, you know, I'm going to use the, the tools that I've been given. I know how to write, you know, I know how to compose articles. I'm going to use that for this movement. Of black nationalism, um, it's not a safe, you know, space to be in, and she doesn't mind that. So we have to remember, kind of, the things we talked about a little bit earlier. Why her mindset is always, "I'm willing to risk whatever it is to stand up, not only for myself, um, but for my people." So she's this very, by any means necessary, standing for black lives um, and black self sufficiency, black nationalism, black independence. That is Louise.
1: And it's interesting because. Marcus Garvey and his Pan-Africanism movement had a very difficult relationship with the NAACP, which was the relationship out of which Alberta was trained. So maybe we could talk, and that's why you see Malcolm X moving as he moved and Dr. King moving as he moved. So maybe just for the sake of history, give us a little bit on Pan-Africanism and what it was that Louise was steeped in and what she taught Malcolm.
2: This is one of my favorite parts, really, of the book, because you see so clearly that Malcolm and Martin didn't just come out of nowhere, you know, fully formed with these ideas around freedom and their approaches to the movement, but that they're really carrying legacies forward that go generations back before them. I mean, centuries even, you know, we're talking about the Caribbeanians on um, Louise's in her home area, but she... Um, really feels drawn to Marcus Garvey's beliefs because she also uh, cares about Black people taking care of themselves and not depending on their white oppressor for anything. So if we fast forward and look at the Nation of Islam, there are direct connections between what they believe is the path forward for Black people. It's anti-assimilation, it's Black independence, Black nationalism. The major difference between the Nation of Islam and um, Marcus Garvey's movement is that Marcus Garvey, he tends to think more about Christianity as the guidance of some of the rules that he comes up with for his followers. And of course, with the Nation of Islam, um, it's it's just a different religion. But outside of that, the core beliefs um, of not depending on this oppressor fighting against white supremacy by any means necessary um, are are exactly the same. And I am not the first to make that connection. There's several like dozens of articles out there that say the nation of Islam and the UNIA, which was Marcus Garvey's um, organization, have these direct ties to each other. And I, maybe a little bit of a spoiler, but later when Malcolm X um, is in prison before he becomes Malcolm X and he's considering the teachings of Elijah Muhammad, There's a letter that I include in the book where he says, mother was the first one to teach us this. So for him, this feels more like a homecoming. It's not brand new information for him. The way we've presented it in history is as if, wow, this was the first time Malcolm X is exposed to this kind of doctrine. That is completely not the case. Instead, he saw it more as a return to what his parents had always taught him.
1: And what's interesting about both Malcolm X and his mom was more so with his mom, she was very Mm light-skinned. She could have chosen a path of sort of faux-right, white identity, Um, but there was nothing about her that was going to have that be a a possibility. And Malcolm used to say that, as opposed to Barack Obama, Malcolm used to say, you know, I hate this white blood in me, whereas President Obama embraced it and said, you know, we can live better if we understand all of that. It's interesting Mm -hmm component of all of their personalities around the fact that they were all born probably of rape and other
2: this is an interesting one because when malcolm X said this that he hates he actually said i hate the white racist blood rapist blood within me um historians then took that almost as fact that like he had come as a that his mother was so light as a product of rape and this was fascinating in my work and really highlighted some of the issues that come up out of the many issues when someone's erased from history um, is that we start to kind of reduce their stories or we kind of just put our assumptions in there. Um, when I talked to the family, they said that story isn't true. It was not that um, her mother uh, was raped. It was actually that her mother uh, married a man who had Mediterranean blood in him. And so she was light-skinned. So it was really fascinating to me. I had this challenge come up what is true and what what is not? What is fact? What is not? Why have we continued to like kind of spread this rumor um, that she, you know, that her mother was was raped, that she was the product of rape? Um, when this is something that's really serious for us to contend with, and uh, I still thought in the book it does give us a moment to speak to the fact that unfortunately, that wouldn't have been so rare. Um, that wouldn't have been so shocking. Sexual violence has been used against Black women. Um, but it's actually not a part of the story that I tell about Louise, because the family um, was very clear that that was not the truth. Um, so it's quite, I've asked that quite often, you know, like, tell us that, you know, how she was the product of, of this awful experience. And I said, that's, I cannot tell you that, because, there is a debate there, um, and I, I would say the family would say that this is just one of those things that has like a rumor that's been created, um, but still an opportunity for us to speak about the seriousness of that possibility.
1: Right, and the seriousness of her view of independence from white assimilation.
2: Exactly, yeah, but she was very clear that she would never pass, um, and she she wanted to really claim her Blackness even more because she could have passed
1: Let's turn to Alberta. We mentioned her a minute ago uh, in contrast uh, to Louise because she did grow up in the NAACP um, tradition. So let's talk a little bit about her formative political education.
2: Yeah. And actually kind of that's obviously a great segue um, in terms of what I was saying before, how I'm not the first to make the connection between the UNIA and the Nation of Islam. I'm also not the first to make the connection between how Marcus Garvey's, leaning um, was kind of placed as this opposite to the NAACP. They were always arguing with each other. They were always, you know, deciding differently. For instance, when it came to each world war, Marcus Garvey said, I am done dying for the white man. I am not going to fight in this war. My followers are not going to fight in this war. And the NAACP had more people saying, this is our chance kind of to join um, and be a part of of the United States that they're going to see us differently when we defend our nation. Uh, So they are always kind of placed on opposite sides of each other, even if they're not necessarily intending for that to happen, people see them as opposites in the same way that we later see Malcolm X and MLK being placed um, as if they are opposites, even if they wouldn't have agreed with that categorization. Um, So this brings us to Alberta, her parents, some of the very first members of the NAACP. They believe, like I said before, in marches, Boycotts, they're not as radical. I mean, for their time, that also is considered radical. Uh, but in terms of how we see it now, how we often celebrate nonviolence more, um, than we would Louise and Malcolm's approach, uh, this is Alberta. She just doesn't call it nonviolence. She talks about it as, um, marches, boycotts, organizing, and MLK really builds on that and then with language that he learns in his education and through leaders that he interacts with across the world, he terms it a nonviolent movement.
1: And you write that Alberta was raised with the example of resistance in the name of humanity and love. Mm-hmm. And that was the underpinning of what would become the, the nonviolent movement that um, Dr. King was uh, yeah. the spearheader.
2: It's also a reminder to us in the comparison of these two families that now, you know, just based off of our few minutes together that we've had so far, Alberta was from a privileged family, right? She had more access. She had more opportunity. Um, and although Louise also had that, her kind of approach made her put her at odds and put her in danger. And then her family was also in danger as a result of that. So you have MLK Jr. in this kind of more warm, kind of cozy situation where the family has esteem in Atlanta. Um, his mother is well educated, father well, now well educated after meeting Alberta. Um, they are, they always have the church behind them. So of course that's going to influence what MLK believes is possible when people can come together versus Malcolm X experiencing being the son of two activists who really stood up for themselves and um, were then attacked. Their houses are burned down. Um, Malcolm X's father is assassinated. Uh, Louise is put away against her will for 25 years of her life. So then we're going to better now know the differences and how the men approach the movement as well.
1: So where does Burtis fit in this continuum? Is she somewhere in the middle
2: of those two This was why I actually wanted to write about three versus two, because I don't believe that they are opposites of each other. Um, and so I think like a third allows us to see it's just, there's, it's complex. There's layers to it. Um, and it stems from their lives, life experiences, their family's experiences. So Bertis, um teaches her children really that they can create change, that they don't need to accept the circumstance as it is. Um, but one of the primary ways that they can do that is through love. Um, So her family members who I was able to interview said this was her kind of core belief that she first and foremost could control um, her love of her children. This was within her power that by loving them so well, they would know their worth. They would know that they deserve to be treated with dignity and with respect that beyond her home. They would kind of ask for that demand that um, because they would know it based off of how their mother loved them. So. This is in her letters and all of the birthday letters that she writes to them, you know, remember love, find love, let go of pain, let go of hatred, because you're the one who's going to be affected by that. Um, so she also tells them you can create difference through your art. So all of her children end up being artistic in some way, um, writers or they're sculptors or they're, um, they're just very creative as a family. And she teaches them that that's kind of the path forward, your education, your mind. Um, and then through your creations, you can help other people follow that same path towards love, light, healing. So that's her approach.
1: And you write of her that her love of writing and of language and of education allowed her to imagine what existed beyond what she could readily see. And, of course, that's James Baldwin in a nutshell. But talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I think actually in all three cases, they were very creative, Alberta, Bertis, and Louise were. Um, And Bertis in particular thought that through her vision that she has in her mind of what's possible in the world, that everyone can be treated with love. Everyone can, you know, welcome each other. Um, she can teach people what she imagines is possible for the world through her work and through these letters. So those who I interviewed, and it also came up even um, in archival research that they wanted to be more like her because this was kind of what I was talking about before, this essence that she has, no matter how hard things get, that's always what she's focused on. And you're kind of really racking your brain thinking, how? How does this woman who, one, is the victim of an abusive marriage, um, then when her husband passes away, she's a single mother of nine. Uh, she doesn't have many uh, many resources um, other than this ability to write and to help other people through their pain. So she's creating realities um, that she's at first just imagining. And I think that's really powerful. Um, And later, James Baldwin says that he he calls himself a witness to the power of light. And he's using his writing to be that witness. And, of course, before this book, we would have thought that's just a beautiful thing that he was saying all on his own. But he was actually directly quoting his mother.
1: Mm. So each get married. They have different types of marriages, which I don't know that we'll have time to get into so much. So I'd like to turn to the chapter called, which is the birth of the children. Yeah. And you, you introduce it with a quote from the writer activist, Audrey Lord. And it reads, raising black children in the mouth of a racist, sexist, suicidal dragon is perilous and chancy. If they cannot love and resist at the same time, they probably will not survive. And in order to survive, they must let go. This is what mothers teach, love and survival. That is self-definition and letting go. So can you talk about that? Because I think it's very powerful stuff.
2: Absolutely. I I love that quote so much. And of course, there's always different ways of interpreting quotes. But the way I interpret it is this balance that especially Black mothers um, or mothers of Black children feel between wanting to love, wanting to protect, wanting to keep them in your embrace, um, but also being aware that they have to go out into the world and define themselves and also kind of play their role in changing the world, maybe, um, and why you also need to let go. And in that relationship, that tug of war, that mother's of of children who are going to face danger outside of their home feel um, is to remember that that's also loving them, giving them that opportunity uh, to also do their part and define themselves for themselves. This was a big part of Audre Lorde's writing. Generally, was self definition, and um, not only for children but for for herself, and saying if we can't define ourselves for ourselves they are going to use this information to grind us to dust is um, a direct quote from another one of her pieces. So that's how I interpret it and um, wanted to start that chapter with it because this was the tug of war that I felt Alberta, Louise, and Bertis were facing, wanting to love their children, keep their children, protect their children, but also being aware that their children had work to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there was, they were putting all this burden on the shoulders of their children, but more so this realistic approach that as the mothers of Black children, there's no choice that we have whether or not we're going to tell them about white supremacy, for instance. We have to, we have to tell them how awful this world can be. We have to prepare them for that because they won't always be in our home. We can't keep them there. But we can also tell them to not feel defined by that, that they still have to seek self-definition, not be limited by these myopic notions of their identity. But third, that they also know they're a part of something so much larger. It's not only on them. It's also that they are part of a legacy that goes generations back, that spans time and space. They're part of a larger team. And the fourth one is that finding joy still. Finding happiness, love, um, even moments of relaxation becomes really critical. And in that chapter, we see it very clearly, those moments of how these mothers approach the tug of war and as much as possible, find the balance.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about Louise and Omaha as a case study in what you've just been talking about, the Teaching through example was something that each of these moms did. And perhaps you could tell the story of the night Riders that showed up at their home in, mm. in Omaha.
2: Yeah. There's so many examples that came to my mind. So I'm glad you gave me the specific one to go to. Um, but it's actually something that's described in the opening chapter of um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, one of the few times we saw Louise before my book was out uh, that when she's pregnant with Malcolm and she has three other children, um, because she is this activist, this was not something that was introduced in that book um, or explained very well, but she was in, in danger. And this was kind of part of the strategy. So Louise meets Earl um, at an activist meeting. They're organizing together. That's how they fall in love with each other. Um, and Marcus Garvey takes note of this couple that's incredibly courageous. And sends them strategically to places in the Midwest um, to really be agitators. They wanted to be known by the KKK. They wanted them to know that the little family had arrived and they were there to incite this kind of revolutionary spirit um, amongst black community members. And so at one point, Earl is away um, speaking um, at some, some one of his organizing meetings and Louise is at home with their three children pregnant with Malcolm and a white mob, um, uh, members of the KKK start approaching. They're on horses. They're carrying torches. They're there to intimidate her. They're trying to kind of run the family out of town. They say they're looking for Earl and that she needs to deliver him, basically. Um, and but we now know more about Louise, right? <laughs> this woman who says, I'd rather die than than bow down to you. Um, I'm unafraid. Or maybe she was afraid, but she comes across as if she's unafraid, Steps outside of the home, um, really shows, you know, her pregnant belly and says, I'm not afraid of you. And just kind of stands there, basically. Um, Her son, Wilfred, who was her eldest, also describes this in one of the talks that he gave um, several years ago. But he says that she had a way of telling you off without even cussing that made you feel so small (laughs) um, and kind of challenges these white men. And to everybody's surprise, they leave. Um, and she kind of goes back into her house. Uh, they, they first surround the house and are, like, breaking windows, but they eventually leave. They don't hurt her or her children, obviously beyond the kind of mental trauma that they're all going to experience as a result of this. But maybe it was the fear of the fact that she seemed so unafraid of what might happen, but they are safe at least for that night.
1: Yeah, and you write of her that she was determined to stay strong and never cower especially in front of her children, and especially when white men were watching or creating the the circumstance.
2: Yeah, it was very important to her that what she was teaching them, um, you know, she again, she might have lost her life that night, but that her children would remember that she stood tall, that this is what she wanted them to do. In the face of white supremacy, stand tall.
1: Tell us about Burtis in respect of the manner in which she raised her children. We talked about it some, but she was a very hopeful person. And her husband was just the opposite. He suffered from depression and was a hopeless, unhappy person. And Bertis had to deal with that and teach her children a different example.
2: Yeah. The largest battle that Bertis fights day in and day out and the longest one is in her marriage. Um, her husband, when they met, so she has James Baldwin versus a single mother. Um, and when he's two or three years old, uh, she meets David Baldwin. Um, and in each other, I think they see sort of an opportunity to start over um, a new kind of chance at life. Um, but unfortunately, um, both of them being members of the Great Migration, and many uh, people would say this during the Great Migration. You can read about this in the warmth of other sons. But there was this disillusionment of you think that you're going towards freedom and opportunity in the north and the land that is going to change things but when you arrive it's the same thing just in different forms and you're being kept from opportunities still you're being treated as if you're less than human um and this is something that for david baldwin becomes extremely overwhelming um and he just he starts to feel very vengeful, very angry, um even in his ministry, he starts to um, say things that are are much more um, filled with rage and um I guess we can't fault him for that, but this is he's kind of this opposite the kind of foil to to Brutus's love, light, joy uh, and so her children are constantly witnessing this difference in them, and I think she becomes very aware that she even more so needs to be this force of light because she has a, a partner who is so now filled with darkness and um, anger and resentment and pain. Uh, and he's abusive towards her. He's abusive towards the children. Um, so we can, we can only imagine really what's going through her mind um, and how, how she prioritizes still being, the The joyful one, and there's a James Baldwin quote in the book where he talks about how his mother had a smile that she reached for every day, a smile that was unique um, and only for her children. And I find that really fascinating now, understanding more of the experience that he was referring to.
1: And she counseled patience because her husband really scorned and mocked young James Baldwin. She sort of said. To him over and over, it's okay to follow your passions and your artistic talents. Don't succumb to the forces which unfortunately overtook your dad.
2: Yeah, basically, he, James Baldwin, was already being noticed even as a young student um, for his brilliance. And it was often said about him that he was both the smartest and the poorest uh, student in the classroom. um, One principal said that at the school he was. A better writer than even all of the adults in the building. Um, and so people start to take note of that and they want to kind of give him some more opportunities. In his case, um, his teachers were very supportive of that. You know, it wasn't the sense of who is this black child who thinks he's better than us. Um, he had some mentors who said, I want to Help feed this passion and they wanted to take him to see plays and they wanted to give him books. And David Baldwin was very suspicious of that because we have to remember he is starting to believe that white people are the devil. This is what he's saying, um, that they're trying to take over his son's mind. And he, uh, really believes this is like the devil's work. Uh, and so he's saying, no, uh, Jimmy cannot go and do these things. He cannot go and see plays. And Bertus stands up. And says he will go and do these things. This is his passion. This is his dream. Um, I'm going to stand for that. But I mean, we don't have any description of what happens next as a result of her standing in, but we can kind of put two pieces together. We know he's incredibly abusive. We know this was dangerous for her, but she believed first and foremost in her children. And, um, I say also in the book that because she herself was a creative, she was a writer. Um, who wasn't able to kind of follow that path and that journey to the extent that she wanted to. She's also seeing James and the possibility of him living out the dream for both of them.
1: Let's turn to Alberta, who grew up, as you said, the wealthiest and perhaps the most stable of the upbringings of each of the, of the three of them. And she raised, because of her family tradition, her children with lessons of social justice and progress. They really were from diapers.
2: Yeah, yeah, she did. She believed that um, this this faith, all of these things that come up with her um, upbringing, she brings directly into teaching her children. Um, in her marriage as well, she's a little less fiery than her husband is. Uh, he describes himself as someone that's kind of quick to anger. Um, and she is more kind of calm and dignified um, and still very stern. She kind of runs the household uh, as a well-oiled machine. There's like very clear rules. The kids go to school, they come back, they pray, they eat together, they do their chores, they do their homework. Um, and so it's for her, I think constantly this uh, balance of being stern being um, clear on what the rules are, but also encouraging them to, to think about what they can do and kind of feel that the possibilities are endless for their lives. So she has her daughter first, then Martin, and then their youngest son, A.D., and um that that's kind of the description of her is she reaches a, a cool balance um she also is proud about more traditional ways kind of of mothering um and and being the the woman of the household um so she's very different than louise in that in that regard um but yeah that those are the primary lessons the biggest influence that she has on. And Martin Luther King Jr. There are many, but one is her belief in his education. So because he has this older sister, he's always competitive with her and he wants to like do all the things that she does. Um, so when she starts school, he says, I want to start school. And he's kind of asking his mom, can I start school even though he's too young? And she actually allows him <laughs> to start school. He's after like a week sent back home because the teacher realizes he's too young. But to him, He just could see that his mom believed in him and that's what mattered. And and he has his kind of like eighth grade graduation. She buys him this suit um, that he is so proud to be wearing. And when his sister starts college, she Alberta encourages Martin to take an exam so that he can start college at the same age. So he starts college when he's only like 17 years old. Um, And all of this comes as a result of Alberta believing that he can if he wants to do that.
1: You say that the children were taught that they needed to be prepared for a life where death and violence were always near, but that they were as good as anyone.
2: Yeah. Yeah. This is a quote that came up actually a lot. Um, Again, most of what I now know about Alberta was not available or public knowledge, but this one quote was because MLK referenced it um, a couple of times in his speeches where his mother sat down with him, told him about the civil war, told him about slavery and how that led to the civil war and what happened after reconstruction and how they arrived at Jim Crow. And then she says, but this is not the natural order of things. This is not how things should be. Like this is not what God intended for us basically. Um, And that he and everyone else, um, her children, they were as good As anyone. And he would often, MLK Jr. reference this um, that my mother would tell me I was as good as anyone. And that sounds like a very basic thing, but we have to think about children during Jim Crow being told from everywhere else that that was not true, that they weren't as good as anyone. So it's the most powerful statement for him that his mother continues to tell him over and over again.
1: We're not going to have time to talk about how the moms responded to the death of their children. We're going to let the listening audience go buy the book and uh, listen to it. But I want to talk about one or two little things that I wasn't aware of at all. One was the death of Alberta King and the institutionalization of Louise. So can you tell us about that? Because I, you know, I think I know little bits of lots of things. And this was like, Oh, really?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely. As we're coming to a close thinking about for them um, towards the end of their lives, but um, well, in Louise's case, it's a little different, but I'll talk about Alberta in 1974. um, She was shot in the back as she played the church organ. And um, as much as I've talked about how, her life up until really the assassination of her son is, is, I mean, I don't want to say the easiest, but she doesn't have as much very clear, obvious tragedy as the other two um, up until uh, her son is assassinated, as we all know. But then her second son also dies under suspicious circumstances. He's, found drowning in his pool, his own pool. He was a good swimmer, and he was also very active in the civil rights movement. Um, and then just a few years later, uh, Alberta is playing the organ, as she did every Sunday. Um, she was also the leader of the choir. And a man, a Black man, walks in, um, sits down for a while, and then suddenly stands up and says that he's taking over and he wanted to kill all Christians. Um, And he shot Alberta in the back and injures two other people before he was um, tackled. And he later says that he had gone there to kill Alberta's husband, MLK Sr., um, but she was closer to him and he changed his mind. Um, And they rush her to the hospital and she she dies and they were unable to um, resuscitate her.
1: Hmm. And then Louise and her institutionalization
2: yeah, Louise, this is also interesting because there were small mentions of Louise being um, put away as how we kind of referred to it before. Um, and if someone did speak about it, they said that she had, quote, gone crazy. Um, and how sad was it that she went crazy and her children were all taken from her? Um, but what I've now explained and we've seen in our conversation is that she is an activist, she stands up for herself. Um, her husband was murdered and she still wants to own her own land. Um, she's a Garveyite. She wants to take care of her children. She doesn't want people coming in and out of her home. Um, but because she is a single mother now of eight, uh, white welfare workers have access to her home um, and they don't have to ask her for permission. So they come in, they are judging the lessons that she's teaching her children. Um, they're kind of planting these ideas in their, her children's minds that their mom has gone crazy. Uh, and they send a white male doctor to evaluate Louise. And he concludes that she is experiencing dementia because she, as he writes in his doctor's note, this is a quote verbatim. She is imagining being discriminated against. This is a Black immigrant woman, a radical activist um, in Michigan, and a white man says she is imagining being discriminated against. And this is enough to put her in an institution against her will for 25 years of her life.
1: Mm. How did Burtis fare in the end?
2: In the end, for Burtis, the biggest moment of freedom comes, unfortunately, when her husband passes away um, and she's actually pregnant with her ninth child, their ninth child, when he dies, you would think, oh, my God, that sounds so incredibly difficult. Um, but for her, it was almost kind of uh, her grandchild, one of her grandchildren described it as like the completion of her orbit, like when her son was finally able allowed to shine her light. Um, and so she does rely on, you know, the help of her kids' teachers. She accepts that help. Um, that's really uh, not something that she's necessarily embarrassed of. Um, she just wants to make ends meet for her kids and support them on their journeys. Um, and she lives a, a happy life, relatively speaking, um, up until 1999. Uh, so I, like I said earlier, she overlapped on one end with Harriet Tubman. Um, and I like to say on the other end, she overlapped with me. I was born in 1992. So it's kind of cool that Virtus was um, alive while I was as well.
1: I'd like to talk in my last questions about legacy. You write that each of the three mothers held strongly to the belief in their families and their own inherent dignity, potential, and ability to make a lasting impact on the world. And they would not succumb to anyone or anything who told them differently. And that if anything, this book teaches us that there is no single way to be a Black mother no single way to be a Black woman. So take us out of here with that and how you see their legacy.
2: Yeah, it was important to me in this book, um, if I was going to be challenging the misrepresentation or the lack of representation of Black womanhood, um, that I not reproduce something that quite often happens if we are included, which is this categorization of Black women and the reduction of our identity as if we are a monolith, as if, One thing that applies to one of us applies to all of us. Um, But instead, I wanted this to be a celebration of our differences and how that's where so much of our strength as a community of Black women lies, is our many different backgrounds and that sisterhood being filled um, with complexity and layers and that we are human beings who are complex and layered. So I, I wanted to make sure that in the celebration of Alberta, Burtis and Louise, uh, we were really thinking about their varied experiences and what that means for Black womanhood as a whole. Um, if people were going to reference my book as a model on how you speak about the humanity of people, um, that I needed to do a good job of that. And um, it, it mattered deeply to me. So hopefully I accomplished it. <laughs>
1: Well, I think you did a great job. And I think that one last line that I'll read to you is that you write that their individual stories, the stories of the three moms really can teach our nation a path forward that is inclusive and beneficial for all.
2: Yeah, I completely believe that. I think that as you read the book, it's not only a history lesson. It's not only so that we can now say, oh, I know these three stories, how interesting, (laughs) but instead to say, what are the women teaching us um, for our world right now? And I believe they carry many lessons that we still um, can apply to the issues we're currently facing. um, And really when we're thinking about moving forward as a nation, um, by also looking back and understanding our history accurately um, and not erasing important key characters um, and people that we will actually be able to move forward.
1: Well, I'm looking very much forward to seeing how you and Michael raise your
2: uh, <laughs>
1: children because they're going to have great mentors as people who, nervous. <laughs> okay. well. Well, people who listen to that said with Michael Zeldin no, I interviewed Michael. He has a great book out there and a wonderful story about his becoming the youngest mayor of a city uh, that's over 500,000 people and, and some of the wonderful things he accomplished there. So, this a is a
2: book. also about black motherhood, actually. Really.
1: <laughs> so, listening audience, this is a couple to keep our eyes on. We, we expect great things. So, the book is called *The Three Mothers: How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation*. Anna Tubbs, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you all so much.
1: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.